As we get going this morning, uh, my name, by way of introduction, is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens Church. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love to do that. Please feel free to come up to me after the service, especially if you have any questions about what's in the sermon or with our statement of faith. Please, you're always welcome to ask questions. But we are continuing our Advent series. We've been, uh, we started last week, and we're going through the songs of the, of the Nativity. And these are four different songs that we see in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. And this week, as last week we looked at the Magnificat, and Jonathan did an excellent job preaching on that. We're now this week looking at what's called the Benedictus. And the Benedictus is, it gets its name because it's the first words in the Latin version of Scripture um, of this passage. So it says, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, which is blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so this whole passage known as Benedictus gets its name because the first word in Latin is blessed. And this whole passage talks about why the God of Israel is blessed. So if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 1, we're in verses 67 through 79. And as you're turning there, introduce a character named Bernard Baruch. Bernard Baruch. He was one of the wealthiest men of the 20th century, and he was also a political advisor to three presidents. He served Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, and Harry Truman. So this man who is financially very successful, also politically pretty successful, when discussing how to choose your political candidate, who to vote for, he gave this advice. He said, vote for the man who promises least. He'll be the least disappointing. Vote for the man who promises least because he'll be the least disappointing. Gives that piece of advice because broken promises hurt. They're painful. Especially big promises. Psychologists say that divorce is one of the most traumatic experiences an individual can go through. They make a big promise to someone else. And then when that other person wants out of that, after they've grown to know each other better and better, it's the most painful form of rejection. And it's the most painful form of a broken promise, the marriage covenant. So when someone makes big promises to you, it can feel really painful when those promises are not kept, when they're broken. And so does that mean that we we no longer believe any promises? No. But we do need to use wisdom as to who is trustworthy when it comes to the promises made to us. Who will we believe? And this morning, as we look at this passage, I submit to you that God, in his mercy, has kept his promise by sending salvation for his people. God, in his mercy, has sent his promised salvation to his people. He has kept his promise. And so earlier in Luke, we, just for way of background, so we have a better understanding of what's happening right here, because for those who have been here, we've been marching through Mark for the most part, and so we're taking a break to look at Advent, and so let's get a little bit of background as to what's happening. So earlier in Luke 1, Zechariah, who's a priest, was informed by Gabriel, this angel, that his wife, Elizabeth, who was barren, would give birth to a son. And he said, that son's name, you'll name him John. And he tied 
Zechariah's tongue and he couldn't speak until the baby was born. And the first things that Zechariah said was his name is John. Six months later, after this promise was given to Zechariah, this angel Gabriel visited Mary and promised Mary that you would give, that she would give birth to the promised Messiah, Jesus. And so shortly after, Mary visited Elizabeth. They're both pregnant at this point. Mary not really showing. She's early in her pregnancy. Elizabeth being six months further along. When Mary gets there and Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, John, in her womb, leaped. That's what the text tells us. That as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the baby in her womb leaped. And then Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognized, or excuse me, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognized that Mary was carrying the promised Messiah, the coming Lord. Now, I give that background so that we can better understand what's happening here, but also, as Matt Smethers points out, it's worth noting that God loves the unborn. We see that Jesus arrived as an unborn baby, and the first person to recognize Jesus was an unborn baby. And so this, as we jump into this passage, which is right after it, the background gives a lot of emphasis to the way that God uses even the unborn. So we want to place value, dignity, and worth there, especially as things go on with the Supreme Court, with this Dobbs case. Now today, we see Zechariah's response after John the Baptist is born. We go through this passage and we see what he has to say, but the five different aspects of salvation that he highlights are the five things that John the Baptist will proclaim in his ministry. And those five things are in your bulletin. We see the Lord of salvation, the promise of salvation, the purpose of salvation, the mission of salvation, and the peace of salvation. Now, for any of you who have been here for more than a few weeks, you know that I'm typically anywhere from two to three, sometimes four points. I've never been at five points. So we might be here till two o'clock. Thanks. <laughs> so either I'm going to rush through it real quick so I don't know how to get through five points in an appropriate time, or I'm going to take a really long time. So we'll just have to wait and see what it is. But before we get into the first of those five points, let's pray. Lord, Thank you for your word. It's a gift to look at it. Help us not take it for granted this morning. God, thank you for giving us a promised Messiah. And thank you for giving us the forerunner to that, John the Baptist. As we consider this text, help me speak clearly. Lord, I joke that there are more points than normal, but help me get through each of them with clarity. That's not going to happen apart from you, Holy Spirit, directing this, so please do direct it. We also ask that you would bless those who come in the name of Jesus this morning to celebrate Jesus, that we would be a gospel-centered, kingdom-oriented church. Lord, we ask that you would also bless other gospel-centered, kingdom-oriented churches, churches that, like John the Baptist, boldly proclaim Jesus while also saying we must decrease and Christ must increase. Have that be the theme this morning, that Citizens Church spiritually speaking, diminishes so that Christ can be further exalted. Lord, have Christ be our message. Help us be more concerned about Christ's kingdom than our own. 
Thank you for other churches who take this similar posture. I think of Providence Church here in Westerville. We pray that you would bless them, that they would see fruit, and that they would see disciples made, that their people would love Jesus more today than they did yesterday. Lord, we pray for Crosspoint Church in Saline, Arkansas. Thank you for their partnership. Lord, as they consider acquiring an old building, which owns their property, we pray that you would help them find a suitable renter for that building. We pray that you would help them keep the renovation costs low. And Lord, as they seek a music minister, we pray that you would give them clarity. Lord, help them find a good fit for their church, for their people. Thank you for churches that share prayer requests. Thank you for churches that lock arms. And God, we pray that Christ will be magnified in each of these churches and Christ will be magnified here as we look at this passage. Thank you for the gift to gather in his name. Amen. Five points, all regarding salvation. The first one we see in your bulletin is the Lord of salvation. So what we want to recognize is that Zechariah, like Mary, immediately praises God. See that in verse 68, where he says, Blessed be the Lord. So the natural question is this whole passage that's known as the Benedictus. It's known as the blessed. Zechariah explaining why God is blessed. We have to ask the question, why? And he gives us just a few answers right here. Three, at least three reasons. We see that God has visited, God has redeemed, and God has raised up a horn of salvation. He's visited his people. See, even the psalmist recognized this is just pure kindness on God's part. He doesn't need to visit us. You guys ever seen the videos where it zooms out from your home and goes further out to your city, to your state, to your nation, to the world, to the galaxy, to the universe, and you just realize how small and insignificant we are, and yet God cares for us. The psalmist in Psalm 8 recognizes this when he writes, What is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. We are so small. And yet this God has given of himself. He has cared for us. He has seen us. And he has visited us. He has also redeemed us. He raises us up to life. He doesn't just visit and then leave without doing anything. But he visits and he redeems. He raises us up to life. And the third thing is God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, you see that term horn of salvation throughout scripture? So what does it mean? Well, an animal's strength is derived from its horn. And so when we hear a horn of salvation, it symbolizes strength. It symbolizes power. And so when we hear that God has raised up a horn of salvation, what is getting at here is that God in his power and in his strength has provided salvation. He's raised up a horn. He's raised up power and strength to save. And he's done this, verse 69 tells us, in the house of his servant David. This is a promise that he told David he would raise up someone from his own line. And so when Zechariah is talking about how he's kept this promise, he's referring to Psalm 132, verse 17 through 18, where it says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So don't miss what's happening here just as we get started. God will raise up a horn, and that 
horn will be a lamp, and that lamp will shine forth. God will raise up a horn, that horn will be a lamp, and the lamp will shine forth. And he attributes this lordship, he says, blessed be the Lord, he attributes this lordship to the God of Israel. So we've mentioned this before, but in the Old Testament you see Lord, and it's in all caps. That's referring to God's name, Yahweh. In the New Testament, when you see Lord, typically the L is capitalized, but the O-R-D are lowercase. That's the translator's way of telling you this is referring to his, him being master, him being king, him being your authority. And so when he says, blessed be the Lord, he's saying, blessed be the king, or blessed be the authority, or blessed be the master. And then who is that master? He says, the God of Israel. And the question is, Why? We said it's because he has done these things. He has visited, he has redeemed, and he has saved his people. The God of Israel has done this. Every other religion says, do this to visit God and do this to be saved. Only Christianity says God has visited you and God has purchased your salvation for you. He's acquired it on your behalf. And so therefore, the God of Israel who has done this for his people is blessed. Only the God of Israel is worthy of being called Lord. Every other quote-unquote God, every lowercase g God, makes promises. Do this, buy into this, follow this, and you will have salvation, this version of salvation. And every one of those promises fall empty and fall short. Only the God of Israel has made the promise of salvation and has delivered on it. He didn't just deliver on it, but he visited his people. He redeemed them and he saved them. So Christian, this morning, if you call Jesus Lord, you're calling him your master, your authority, your king. He's the only one worthy of that title. But hear me, there will always be a battle for that title in your life. There will always be something, and it can be good things, that will always try to take the throne of authority, of lordship, of kingship in your life. We need to be reminded that only Christ, only the God of Israel is worthy of that title. So we, as followers of Jesus, need to model to the world what it looks like to joyfully submit to the authority of King Jesus. I was having a conversation just earlier this week with someone, and th this person doesn't live in Westboro. I was encouraging uh, this person to, to join a local church, and the response was, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't want to join a church because I can't stand the, all the repent and submit talk. And I, just, I tried to gently steer this person and say, that's the whole Christian life, is repenting, recognizing that we've fallen short, and submitting to the authority of Christ. That's the entire Christian life. And so what we as followers of Jesus should joyfully model what it looks like to repent, to confess our sin, and to joyfully submit to Jesus' lordship in our own lives. And we can do that because he is a good king. He's the only one who has come to us and who has purchased salvation on our behalf. Maybe you're in the room and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're considering it. Wherever you are, glad that you're here. 
But I would submit to you that expecting the God of Israel to extend forgiveness to you without you being willing to submit and bend your knee to him is spiritual arrogance. Expecting the God of Israel to save while refusing to bend your knee to him would be spiritual arrogance. It would be as if he was your errand boy. I need to be saved. Come over here. Do this thing for me. If we are going to expect to be saved by this king, then we need to bow our knee to him. John Calvin put it this way. He said, Let it be also observed that this horn, this horn of salvation, brings salvation to believers, but terror to the ungodly when it scatters or bruises and lays prostrate. To reject God's horn of salvation brings greater judgment upon yourself. It's unique. This morning, we have the opportunity to gather. The church that I grew up in, pastor would always say, we will never be gathered like this again. There's some truth to that. Never be gathered exactly like this again. But it is unique, and it is God's kindness that we are gathered in this room where the gospel is being proclaimed, and we have the opportunity to respond to it. There may be a situation where you're taken across the country, or where you find another church, or suddenly life gets busy, and you no longer hear the gospel on a consistent basis. It's God's kindness to you today to hear the gospel and to respond to it. This horn of salvation is being proclaimed, and it brings salvation to believers, but terror to the ungodly. And then maybe you're in the room, and it's a particularly painful season for you. would encourage you to focus in on the part of this passage where the God of Israel is known as one who visits his people. We see this throughout Scripture. God visiting his people. We see this with the Exodus. They call out to him. They call out to him for 400 years. He visited. God does not forsake his people. If you are hurting, be reminded of his kindness to visit. And he is visiting you even when you are going through painful seasons. Now, this God of Israel, he is the Lord of salvation. But we need to continue to move forward. But it was him, hundreds of years ago, who made this promise of salvation. So you see your second point there, the promise of salvation. Now this promise was made to his holy prophets, which we see in verse 70, that we should be saved from our enemies in verse 71. Now this promise was made hundreds of years prior, and it's uh, one of the passages that point this out is Jeremiah 23, where we see, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. And deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will, do, will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So let me unpack that just a little bit. God's people will be saved by a righteous king and will dwell securely. God's people will be saved by a righteous king. Jeremiah 23 says, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. And it says, in those days, Judah, God's people, will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. A king is being promised, a righteous king, that will protect his people and will allow them to dwell securely, that will save them from their enemies. God promised this. And he gives at least two reasons why he made this promise. And we see him in verse 72. To show mercy 
These promises will show his mercy. And these promises will show that he remembers his promises, his holy covenant. Verse 72, show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. See, we don't deserve salvation, but in God's mercy, he has provided it. And this salvation highlights God's mercy and highlights God's faithfulness to keep his promises. See, it's often a question that could easily come up and oftentimes does come up is why does God, why did God ever even allow the fall to take place? Why? Wouldn't it have been better if in the garden he just showed up on the scene and said, Eve, don't take that apple. Wouldn't it have been better? But here's the, the thing that we oftentimes don't pick up on is that if the fall had never taken place, then we would not have understood God's mercy in not destroying us. If we were always perfect and deserving of blessing, then we would not understand a characteristic of God in his mercy to not destroy us. The wages of sin is death. And he has been patient with us. We also would not understand the grace of God to give us a Savior that we do not deserve. We wouldn't understand the depth of his love for us. He would love us, yes. But how much more on display is his love when he loves those who are undeserving? So because of the fall, we can, we can see the depth of God's love for us. We can also see the wrath that he has against sin. We wouldn't have ever seen his wrath if there was no sin. And so by seeing his wrath, we see not only does he love us, but he hates that which destroys us. We would not have seen that apart from the fall. And lastly, and you could probably pull out more, but lastly, we wouldn't see his justice in correcting every bit of it. These aspects of God, these aspects are displayed through salvation. If the fall never took place, then we wouldn't have been able to see these things in their full measure. But now we get to see them more clearly. So this promise of salvation is God mercifully keeping his promise to provide salvation. He's mercifully promised it, and he has faithfully kept it. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, not only is keeping your word important, it's honest, but it also reflects the character of God. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Men, one of the greatest gifts that you can give your family is the gift of consistency. I was talking with another pastor earlier this week, and he was sharing with me how he was taking his daughter on a little daddy-daughter vacation. And he said, she's 13 now, and he's just giving me advice. He's like, man, one of the greatest gifts you can give your family is the gift of consistency. He's like, my daughter knows that dad's going to be home at a certain time. My daughter knows that dad responds certain ways to certain behaviors. He's like, when I'm consistent with that, it builds an environment of safety for her. She knows what to expect. He said, and then when I fail, I can consistently come to her and ask for forgiveness. So which elevates the gospel. So men, let your yes be yes. Be consistent with your family. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give. And parents, same thing with your kids and the way that you, that you parent. Be consistent. And trust me, I know how difficult that is. We do not do it perfectly. But strive for consistency. And those in the are hurting this morning maybe you've been promised things only to see those promises broken 
reason that that's so painful is because we were not designed to be lied to. God has given us the ability and the faculty to, to speak and to make promises. We were not designed to lie. We were not designed to go back on those promises to break covenants. But let that pain that you feel because of broken promises point you to the one who has never broken a promise to you. Let it remind you that there's only one who will not let you down. There's only one who has made promises and has a perfect track record of keeping them. God has never and will never lie to you. Sometimes we may misinterpret what God's word says and we may think that God has lied to us. But if we rightly understand what his word says, we read it in context, we can see that every promise God has made, he has fulfilled. And every promise that is yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled because he has a perfect track record. We can be confident that he will continue to fulfill them. So church, let's be familiar with God's faithfulness. and Let's remind one another of it. And so we see the Lord of salvation. We see the promise of salvation. And now we see the purpose of salvation. There is a purpose behind everything that God does, including our own redemption. It's not arbitrary. He didn't just say, yeah, you know what? I, want, I think I want to save these people. I think that would be a fun thing to do today is create a, a plan of salvation. Let's make it happen. He has a reason for it. Everything God creates is designed for, with a purpose. Everything God does has a purpose. And when those things operate in harmony with their designed purpose, then we see flourishing. So airplanes can float in water. They have that ability. Should they go down, they've got the ability to float. But no one is buying an airplane to sail across the world. When we submit to God's design for our lives, when we see the purpose of salvation, then we can flourish. So what is his purpose in saving us? We see this in verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, and here it is, might serve him. And how would we serve him? Without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all of our days. See those three characteristics. Without fear, in holiness and righteousness, all of our days. This perfect love, this God says, perfect love casts out all fear. So if we know this God, and as we grow in our understanding of him, our unhealthy fear of him will diminish. There's still, it's not that Jesus is our homeboy. It's not that we don't have any respectful fear of him. We do. But the fear of not being able to approach him. Hebrews talks about approach the throne of grace with boldness. We'll be able to do that more when we understand God's kindness to us. And he says to serve him all of our days. So, not just Sundays, not just Sundays and the day that you have community group, all of our days. On days when we're tired, on days when we're hanging out with old friends that we haven't seen in a while, on days when no one is watching, on days when we're frustrated, on days when we're underappreciated, on days when we're hurt, on days when we're irritable, on days when we're busy. We're called to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. 
this is his design for our salvation, that we might stop serving ourselves and begin serving him, serving him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, forever. And in doing this, when we see God's purpose and we submit to his purpose for our salvation, we will experience life and life abundant because we'll be operating in harmony with the design that God has created us for, to serve him. We are designed to worship God. So a question for everyone in this room is, are you living in fear? Are you serving God out of fear? He has died so that you may serve him without fear, so that you may be able to approach him with boldness. But the only way that happens is if you're wearing the perfect holiness and righteousness required to approach him. So we see that he's called us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. The only way you can approach God without fear is if you are clothed with a perfect holiness and a perfect righteousness. God is perfectly holy. We'll expound on that a little bit more, but you need a perfect righteousness. You need a perfect holiness to enter into his presence without fear. So is Christ, are you embracing Christ as your king? Are you trusting in his righteousness and his holiness? Are you serving God or are you serving self? If someone evaluated your life, would it reflect glad service to God or would it reflect glad service to yourself? I heard somebody say that if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? So there's a purpose behind our salvation, that we'd stop serving ourselves and start serving God. But we're also given a mission of salvation. It's the fourth point in your bulletin there. And so look with me in verse 76. So we see Zechariah talking about John the Baptist, his son. And he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist, from the day he was born, was given a mission to prepare the way of the Lord, to make people aware of this coming salvation. And the good news is that this salvation has come. That doesn't mean that mission has ended. Now God's people are brought into this mission of letting others know, of giving knowledge of salvation to the lost, letting them know that there is forgiveness of sin, letting them know that this forgiveness of sin comes through the mercy of God. It doesn't come through our own works, through our own ability to muster up some form of righteousness that those around us deem righteous enough. It comes through the mercy of God to give us the perfect righteousness necessary. But see, we will never accept this mercy, this mercy that God has shown us in giving us His Son, if we don't first understand why we need it. We'll never accept mercy if we don't first understand why we need it. And I touched on this just a few minutes ago. The reason we need it is because God is holy. God is perfectly holy. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, which if you want to expound on this subject of God's holiness, there's no better book 
than the holiness of God written by R.C. Sproul. He says, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. We are not. Psalm 5-4 tells us that nothing unholy, nothing wicked, nothing evil or sinful can dwell with God. Even if you sin once and for the rest of your life never sin again, there is still sin in your life. It needs to be dealt with. Any amount of sin, past, present, or future, prohibits you from being in the presence of a perfectly holy being. God is perfectly holy. We need our sin removed. But not only do we need our sin removed, we need a holiness provided. A righteousness provided. There's a twofold aspect to that. And yet, in God's kindness, we see in verse 35 of Luke 1, Gabriel answering Mary, <clears throat> he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. This Son of God not only takes away our sin, but he is called holy. And so anyone who embraces him as their Lord, as the one who saves them, receives his holiness, receives his righteousness, so that God will now see you, if you are clothed in Christ, as sinless and as holy. And the mission of salvation is that we would take this knowledge to others. That those whom God has saved are called to take this saving knowledge to others. Just like John the Baptist was called to go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, we are called to give knowledge of the salvation that God has provided in the forgiveness of sins. He's shown mercy. He's offered a way for sin to be forgiven. We must let others know of this. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here it is. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are in Christ, then you are called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to those around you. We are called to evangelize. Our coworkers and our neighbors should know that we are followers of Jesus. Christian, pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Seek winsome ways to share the gospel. God will orchestrate all kinds of divine appointments to where conversations just happen and you didn't even realize what was happening and the next thing you know you're have the opportunity to talk about Jesus with a coworker or a friend or a family member. I encourage you to pray for those opportunities. Non-Christian, 
have you considered your sin? Do you take it seriously? Do you recognize the weightiness that God is holy? Have you considered God's mercy? Maybe you're in the room and you're a well-aware sinner. You're very aware of your shortcomings. You're very aware of the ways that you have fallen. Remind yourself of God's kindness. Remind yourself of God's mercy. We're called to take that knowledge to others. Sometimes we need to take it to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that God is a faithful God. That anyone who confesses their sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive them. In church, let's be a place that's rich in mercy. We serve a God who is rich in mercy. Let's be a people who are known for being rich in mercy. When, when that is displayed, by God's grace, we will encounter the peace of salvation, the last point in your bulletin. See at the end of verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Those separated from God, those who do not know the Lord Jesus, who are not submitting to him as their Lord and as their King, they're in spiritual darkness and spiritual death. Ephesians 2 calls it death. However, yet, by God's grace, Colossians 1 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this beloved son that Colossians 1 talks about is the sunrise that's mentioned in verse 78 there. We know that because he claims it in Revelation 22 when he says, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The bright morning star. The sun rises, sun being a star, bright morning. He is the sunrise mentioned here in verse 78, who guides those who follow him into the way of peace. God has visited us to bring us from darkness to light from death to life, from rebellion to peace. He does this through Jesus, who is the light, who is life. C.S. Lewis says, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. I'll read that again. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. If you want peace, if you feel anxious, irritable, tired, take Christ, who is our peace, who is the bright morning star, who is the one who says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We have out on the welcome table, books, gentle and lowly, that expound on those two verses. Great book. Would encourage you, if you haven't already picked it up, it's free. Take it, read it, be encouraged by it. But if you want peace, if you want true peace, it only comes through the one who can provide it. The one who bridged the gap between us and God the Father. John Calvin, again, does us a favor by putting this all nice and neat. 
He says, God has exhibited in Christ every blessing so as to ratify all his promises. As indeed, their truth is only confirmed to us when we see their fulfillment in Christ. All these promises are fulfilled in Christ. He says, forgiveness of sins is promised in the covenant, but it is in the blood of Christ. Righteousness is promised, but it is offered through the atonement of Christ. Life is promised, but it must be sought only in the death and resurrection of Christ. All of the promises God has made, he is fulfilling. And he's doing this through the person of Jesus. God, in his mercy, has sent his promised salvation to his people. So this morning... As we go, I encourage you to stop seeking salvation from lowercase g gods that cannot provide it, that make empty promises and do not keep those promises. False gods who make false promises depend entirely on the only one who has made the big promises and has fulfilled them. The pain of having a promise given to you and it being broken is real. But God has made some massive promises and he has fulfilled them. He has done it in Christ. And today is the day of salvation. If you haven't, then I would encourage you to call on Christ. Acknowledge your sin. Let him know that you are a fallen sinner in need of forgiveness, and that you are calling on his name and his name alone for that forgiveness, and that you want to submit to his lordship in your life. Praise God, not only for making these big promises, but for fulfilling them in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have shown us that there is, that you are the Lord of salvation, that you have made big promises of salvation, and you have fulfilled them. That you have given us a purpose in that salvation, to serve you and not ourselves. That you have given us a mission to share the knowledge of this salvation with others. And that in so doing, as we operate, as we have been designed to operate, that we will inherit the, the peace of salvation. Thank you for taking away our sin through Christ. Thank you for making a way for us to be at peace with you so that we can enter into your presence. We give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.